This episode of the Managing Madrid podcast is brought to you by Manscaped. The Olympics, Euros, baseball, major championships, and concerts are all this summer. You know what isn't? A wild and hairy bush. Tame your pubes with help from our friends at Manscaped, the leaders in below-the-waist grooming. Their fourth-generation performance package includes the brand-new Lawnmower 4.0, and if an athlete treats their body like royalty, why not treat your pubes like Olympic gold? Fellas, do right by your balls and join the 2 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped by going to manscaped.com with the code MANAGINGMADRID. Hey, Omar Vind, who do you think left their Manscaped mowers at home today? Well, to be honest, Kian, there are a lot of candidates, probably almost all of the Real Madrid players, but specifically the Real Madrid TV broadcast. It was everything that doesn't happen or everything that happens when you don't Manscaped, right? It was grainy. The quality was off. And ultimately, we just wanted to cover it up, stick it back in its package, and not look at it anymore. And yeah, that's exactly why you should Manscaped. And I think Matt will tell us who is the person that did. You're right, Om. And there was one Real Madrid player that uh, Manscaped this weekend, and that was Andre Ludin. I mean, the guy probably, he, he played one game last season, right? So he had plenty of time on the sidelines to focus, to get things right, and to make sure he Manscaped. And that's what he did. And once he got his opportunity, he took it today and was probably our best player in a lousy preseason performance. Listeners, get 20% off and free shipping with the code MANAGINGMADRID at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code MANAGINGMADRID at manscaped.com. Achieve pubic glory this year with Manscaped. This episode is also brought to you by the Ryu Plaza New York Times Square Hotel which is where you should be booking your stay when you come see us for the New York podcast. That's right. New York is part of the Managing Madrid podcast world tour, along with several other cities every month starting in September. New York is in December. So if you want tickets to that, just go to the show notes. And if you hear any of these cities, um, and if they're anywhere close to you, Los Angeles in September, Toronto in October, Dallas in November, New York in December, Miami in January, London in February, Washington, D.C. in March, Chicago in April and Mumbai in May. Make sure to go to the show notes and book your seat in the in that city. And if you're anywhere close to those cities, make sure you just book your seat and reserve your spot because it's filling up fast. By the way, the Ryu Plaza New York Times Square Hotel is located in the heart of the great city of New York and is surrounded by emblematic sites such as Central Park, Rockefeller Center, the Empire State Building, Carnegie Hall, and the luxury luxury stores on Fifth Avenue. Its extraordinary location makes the hotel the ideal spot from which to enjoy the authentic pace of New York life and an interesting array of cultural and leisure activities. And we know this. We stayed there, actually, for our last New York podcast. And when it says located in the heart of the city, it's literally the heart of the city. You walk out. First of all, the podcast venue is right across the street, and then New York Times Square is right there. So it's literally where everything is happening. So book your stay at Ryu Plaza New York Times Square Hotel. That's R-I-U, Ryu Plaza New York Times Square Hotel. And let's get started on tonight's podcast, which is the Rangers post-game show with myself, Keon Sabani, Matt Wiltsey, and Om Arvind. And then part two, Grant and Om, they cover Real Madrid Feminino's players who are in the Olympics right now. So stick around for both parts. Enjoy it. Kick your feet back. Sip your teas and your coffees. And enjoy. Nice article in the... Managing Madrid uh, blog, uh, wonderful lads that do a great job there, and worth reading about that man there, 
All right, welcome to a Sunday afternoon edition of the Managing Madrid podcast. We are recording this right after Real Madrid lost to Rangers at Ibrox, which is apparently the only only the second time we've ever played there at Ibrox. It blew my mind when I heard that stat. Two historically great clubs. Um, I guess we played a lot at Hampton Park, but not Ibrox, which was news to me anyways. Uh, we went there and we lost in terrible result. Season off to a bad start, gentlemen. Let's overreact. Let's uh, let's talk about all the things that Carlo Ancelotti did wrong, all the legends that are finished, um, and let's talk about the doom and gloom season incoming and all the Rangers players we should sign. This is going to be a tra- Rangers transfers podcast coming up. So joining me, Keon Sabani, are Matt Wilty and Om Arvin. Um, Om, condolences, man. How, how are you going to recover from this game? Uh, not quite sure, Keon. This might be the most devastating result I've ever experienced as a Madrid fan. We'll probably take a couple of days. Watching Alvaro Odriozola play is quite a difficult thing sometimes, and it's been a rough year. And, and, and to recover from that and, and 90 minutes of watching that will, will be kind of tough. But by, by the next friendly, I should be okay. Matt, we don't have analytics or stats for this game, thank God, because then we would just overanalyze everything and and the podcast would drag on two hours more than it should have. Um, so all the great <laughs> sad websites did not care to pick up on this game, nor, nor should they. To give you the more, most basic of stats we can, or to give you an idea of how this game went, regardless if you watched it or not. Shots. Very simple statistic that we have. Real Madrid 5, Rangers 21. Shots on target, Real Madrid 1, uh, Rangers 8. So that's kind of what we're talking about here. Real Madrid had more possession far less dangerous opportunities and that's kind of how it went down and and uh again this is not like this is not something that we're going to read in too much i guess a lot of real madrid's players are just uh, unavailable steven gerrard is doing some good things at rangers um do you want to even maybe we can start here did you were you impressed with rangers the way they played um, I know that Steven Gerrard has been a little bit of a talking point here throughout the throughout Twitter and during the game itself. So what did you see from Rangers that gave us some problems today? Yeah, um, I think Rangers, to me, they looked like a well-oiled machine. Like they were pressing really well. Um, they, they, they were really co- cohesive as a team. Like they, when they pressed, they pressed together. And our our back line especially struggled to play out of that. Like Chust looked really uncomfortable on the ball when being pressed. Odriozola had had no idea what to do in possession. He was a mess. Um, and then Marcelo had. I mean, you you expect him to maybe struggle in recovering or to do poorly isolated one v one defending, but to give the ball away so many times needlessly and just like that one moment where he he tried to call for a handball when he flicked it off the Rangers opponent like that was that was ridiculous and then he didn't have the pace to recover yeah and Madrid were punished and honestly that I think I saw on Seth that it was 17 shots to one shot we had the one shot which we scored Um, and that was really I'm trying to think but that that was really our only opportunity and you just didn't see Madrid they had they couldn't retain possession long enough to really build up anything in the final third um I mean, there were there were some there were some bright spots. I'm sure we'll get into it, but overall, Rangers looked much the better side. I, I think Gerard has done a good good job with that team. They had some nice players, and they, I mean, if it wasn't for Lunin, we would have been 
down two three nothing at halftime. Um, do you feel like there are things that you like that could be possibly a premonition? And I know we none of us like to do this, and I think if there's any example of preseason not being an indicator of how the season is going, it's that seven three loss in New Jersey to Atletico, and you know that's kind of become the symbolic poster of you know don't read into preseason because everyone you know had these very extreme takes that day. Um, but is there anything from here? Because one thing that I did say, I remember, I remember being at that game and we did a podcast in New York right after it. And one of the things I remember saying myself was that like some of these problems um, may go away and some of these things are not problems at all and we can figure it out. And this is mostly a fitness training camp, etc. Um, having said that, I, I, I hate the, the idea of losing 7-3, whether it's a friendly or not, or if it's a game of FIFA, I would just have too much pride to lose 7-3. But that was another kind of angle I took but one of the things I said was that there were issues in that game that you know were lingering for a couple years do you think there's anything any of the issues today were things that you you would be worried that might linger into the season so the way I approach it is to basically like kind of what you're doing in terms of like is this reflective of things we've seen loads of times and so I, it would just mainly be confirmation of stuff that we know to be true instead of trying to take something and, and be like, okay, off this tiny sample, this is the first time we've seen something like this, let's project into the future. So for an example of something I wouldn't do was I thought Arribas looked really good coming in as a striker. And I wouldn't take this game and say, okay, he's going to be a really good striker from now and I'd need a sample size for that. But we could talk about his performance I thought he was like the one bright spot of the second half and probably the only worthy talking point from a Real Madrid perspective in the second half. But what I would do is, for example, take Odriozola's inability to retain the ball under pressure, poor passes, you know, being like just basically listless on the ball and in possession and say, well, this is probably likely to continue, not because it happened in a preseason friendly versus Rangers, but because this is reflective of what we've seen from Odriozola in the past. And I don't really know what the argument is that it would continue. So for me, it would be something like that. So the, the Odriozola point would be that for me, right? Because um, obviously he's getting minutes because one, we can't find anywhere to offload him. And so therefore Ancelotti has to look at him and be like, okay, let me see whether he can be a serious piece of this side. And I, I think this just continues to answer, like, no, right? Like, Lucas Vasquez will be the secondary right back. And Oladizola is not going to be a relevant part of the squad unless injuries happen. And, and even then, we'd, we'd probably consider Militao or Nacho on that side and stuff like that. The the other thing for me is what this shows is, like, we have a, we have a ton of work to do. And I, I don't even know if you necessarily need this preseason, but you consider the fact that we don't have any of like the first team really um, together, and we we've been training with this small group for for a couple of weeks, and we looked this disorganized. Right, our pressing was really bad. Uh, I mean, Rangers, as Matt mentioned, looked like a really well-oiled machine. It was so it was just such a huge contrast to see us just kind of randomly pressing, and Rangers no problem, just finding the overload, quick triangle, quick one two, break pressure, move to the flank third man run into the final third cross or shot like just again and again easily beating our defensive structure not something I was surprised by but probably something that goes into the first couple games of the season because if it's there it'll show up in a preseason friendly at some level and it's just not and it's not with this group of players and it's and 
we don't have most of the players we want to start back with us. And so it's going to be a long process. And I wouldn't be shocked if it was kind of a slow start to the season because we, we were basically rebuilding, you know, a certain identity from scratch and trying to find ourselves again. And as we saw today, we're like, I don't know, like 10% of the air. From like a pure tactical perspective, I don't know if there's, I have that much to kind of start saying like, you know, these are the issues and, and this is what we need to work on. I, I think most of that conversation will will basically be um, stemmed from the last few years and not from today, obviously. And today, you know, we don't, this is Carlo, Anche- we have to remember this is a new era under Carlo Ancelotti in some ways. And um, to an extent, what Zidane did in the last few years may not matter uh, or may, or they may be a distant thing of the distant past. Like I expect, for example, Ancelotti to press a little bit more and I was encouraged the way Odegaard led the pressing line during some sequences behind the ball. I think that's something that we can look forward to. And also when you welcome back the entire A-team that could help with that and more ener- energetic ball-to-ball, uh, box-to-box midfielders like Fede joining the team, um, plus, uh, plus some improved passing when you when you factor in Cruz and Modric, etc. Um, that, that's, uh, that's going to be encouraging to me. I do think we can... Some, I guess in preseason, I, I kind of look at the individual performances and the fitness levels. I focus on that a little bit more. One of the things that worries me beyond this game, and trust me, I, I try very hard not to do this during the preseason, but Marcelo does. And uh, I did not like his performance today. I thought he looked leg heavy. I thought he looked a little bit out of shape, which again, first preseason game, I'm not going to knock him too much for that. But I don't know if... You know, again, based on the past couple seasons, I'm not sure he's someone you're going to rely on. And I'm not sure you might have to anyway. Like, I saw a lot of takes like, Marcelo's the captain, so we're going to be forced to play him. I don't, I don't think so. I don't think that's going to be true. He may play more than he did under Zidane because Carlo likes attacking wingbacks. But um, I do I do worry a bit about, you know, his he's not he doesn't have the same agility he used to. Even when beating players in tight spaces, you can see like his body language is uncomfortable. It's not as confident as it used to be. Plus, his fitness is not the same. That The giveaway that Matt talked about was actually pretty surreal because he, instead of turning outward or turning down the flank and he had space to open up, he just passes it backwards and the Rangers player intercepts it and Marcelo calls for the handball. And then that's a sequence that Ryan Kent, where he hits the crossbar. I think the one good thing he did, he had that really nice cross that finds Adibus in the box who who couldn't redirect his header in a, in a good way. But um, do you want to, do you want to talk about Marcel a little bit, Matt, and, and how much you think, how much you worry about his impact this season and whether it'd be good or bad? Yeah. I mean, let's be honest. This has been the Marcelo for what last three years. Like this isn't surprising to any of us. Uh, this is more or less how he's been playing especially in just a pure left-back role for, for quite some time. So I don't... I, I, there's just... I don't see a world where all of a sudden we, we start relying on Marcelo or we can count on Marcelo and he'll be an important figure in, in this team. I just I don't see that happening. I think what we're going to have to count on, especially if this Mendy injury, I, I don't know if it's something that's chronic or something that um, stems from his hip and his hip issues, but... Uh, and that that's one thing I'm a little bit worried about. But if Mendy can't stay fit, I mean, we're going to be relying on either an aging Marcelo or a, a really young raw kid in Miguel Gutierrez. I know, I know a lot of people are are hyped up hyped up about Miguel Gutierrez, but 
and he he hit the post today, but we still the sample size is so small with him, and we just we just don't know. Like, can you really rely on him? I mean, odds are, teenager, you don't want to put that much responsibility. So, it's the Marcelo thing is. I just feel like it's long overdue. Like this, it's it's well past its expiration date, and so that's it's sad to say that, but it, it's true. Uh, this- yeah. So this is what I was talking about. Yeah, go ahead. Om. In terms of like preseason value coming in terms of like confirming things we already know. And it was Matt was saying like, I don't know like it, how, what shows us that we're going to see this like new version or, or this old version of Marcelo again. And and this is just kind of like a confirmation of right. This would be a moment for us to be like, has Marcelo turned the corner? Has he like beaten his age or something? And what the game showed today is like, Quite obviously not. And so, you know, not because of this preseason game, but because it is one game of many, I think we can go into the season being pretty confident. Like, this is not a guy that we can rely on regularly. And if anything, and with the fact that he, he'll he have the captaincy, he's, he's a dressing room figure, right? Like, that's why he's still going to be here. Kind of like what Juan Mata, Manchester United, no, I don't you guys we're aware of the discussion over him, but like there were a lot of people asking like, why aren't they offloading him and stuff like that? And Solskjaer kind of like pretty strongly came out and said like, we want him here because he has a dressing room influence. Now I'm not saying it's the exact same situation with Marcelo and that Real Madrid like see him as a player that they're not going to rely on on the field. But I would, I would imagine that's kind of where the, the majority of Marcelo's value would come from now. And whether we like it or not, Miguel Gutierrez probably is going to have to shoulder the burden of being that second fullback and even if that's not our plan we're going to learn very quickly that's probably that's what it's going to have to be if we you know start Marcel in a couple games and he's not up to it like he has in the past couple seasons there's a there's a question that just came in from a patron while we were recording it's from sad omar he says if marcelo plays left back then the left center midfielder probably tony cruz is going to have to constantly cover the left wing to plug the defensive holes the problem would be further exasperated because right wingers are usually very pacey players. Think Mohamed Salah, Riyad Mahrez, and Tony has little to no pace. That shit worked when the offensive capabilities of Marcelo outweighed his defensive ineptitude. For Carlo Ancelotti's sake, I hope he doesn't stick to Marcelo for long. I don't care if he's a ceremonial honorary captain. You know it's unsalvageable when someone like Zizou, who dogmatically supports his players, his loyal players, threw in the towel and went with Mendy. Here's my left-back order for this season. Ferlan Mendy, David Alaba, Miguel Gutierrez, Nacho, Bale, and Marcelo. Do you guys agree? Um, so I, I actually I do think what, one of my bold predictions with one of you guys, or was whether it was on the website on the podcast, I can't remember, was that I think Marcelo's going to play more than he did last season. Um, and that's that's mostly down to the possibly because Ancelotti might value his offensive, or at least in theory, his offensive um capabilities more than Mendy's defensive capabilities in certain games, not every game. Um, certainly we know that that hasn't always been the case. And famously, maybe his most famous, his most famous, um, uh, or at least one of his most fam- famous games was against Bayern when he put Fabio Coentrao instead of Marcelo and Coentrao put Robin in his back pocket, which was a fun thing to revisit this weekend. I don't know why for some reason I just revisited that game. It was super fun. Um, so it's not like he's going to play Marcelo every game, but I think possibly more than last year Marcelo will play. Having said that, I don't know if we need to discuss it that much um, 
mostly because of, of all these names that Sad has mentioned, Mendy is still arguably the best defensive left back in the world. He's gonna, he is our best option there. And Miguel Gutierrez looks great. And Carlo did have this interesting wrinkle today where he puts Marcelo and Gutierrez together, which I don't think is going to become a thing um, because, you know, we didn't have our other left wingers in the squad and other wingers like Vinicius, Hazard, and and uh, Asensio, and, and all those guys, and Bale. So I, I don't think we're going to see that too often. But I actually think, like, when you when you stack up all these names together, I don't know how much we're going to have to worry about this. What do you guys think? Like, Matt, do you think we'll actually have to worry about this problem and as much as we're talking about it right now? It depends. It depends on if we have an injury crisis like we did last year. Um, if we if we fall into another season like that, which honestly wouldn't be unprecedented, just given the fixture load from the last few seasons. I mean, the COVID congested calendar is always going to catch up with you. And so, I think the one good thing is we a lot of these guys are getting a real preseason this year, so that should help. Um, and you hope that. Um, Pintus and his staff and maybe if whatever whatever recommendations they're getting from uh, the Dallas Cowboys um, head medical doctor as mm-hmm. long as those new um, implementations like help out then okay maybe there's a chance we can ward off some of these injuries and it won't be such a big deal but if we start I mean Alaba is mentioned in that list but like Al- Alaba is most likely going to be playing center back and if we start getting a couple injuries at center back and then let's say Mendy has to play center back or whatever it may be just to make make way, then you're starting to get down into the left back depth chart. And that's when it, that's when it gets a little scary. Oh, what did you think of Isco and Odegaard in this game? Omi there? Oh, you're on mute, buddy. I'm keeping in this. I'm keeping this part in the podcast. I want everyone to know that you you were on. Yeah, mute. there we go. That's not what happened. My uh, there's issues with my headphones. Let's see if it lasts. Um, but yeah, I, I have no idea where Matt ended, but I'm just assuming it was on whether we still had to worry about Marcelo and um. <laughs> where we I, moved I mean, on from that, but I w- I was I didn't yeah, want okay. you to chime in on that anyway. I left a little bit of a vacuum of space, but you didn't answer, so I I moved on. But yeah, tell us about that. I, I mean, like yeah, I mean, I we have plenty of other options if we really need to go to it, and I guess that's part of the advantage of signing someone like Alaba and his versatility in those positions. It just is like the only question is how much Ancelotti values what Marcelo can give and how much he's he thinks he can revive him. Otherwise, it's not necessarily something we we have to go to. And uh, like I said, I think his dressing room influence is kind of the biggest reason uh, for him staying around now. So my the way I kind of changed gears was I'm I'm curious to know what your assessment was of Isco and Odegaard in the midfield together. Um, I did. F- it was interesting to see the kind of the four three three traditional four three three where Carlo has one deep lying anchor in the build up phase, and that usually was Antonio Blanco with Isco and Odegaard um, playing symmetrically alongside of him. Um, but it kind of like moved around a little bit in different phases of this game. But what did you think of those two uh, in particular? And then you know maybe we can move on to Antonio Blanco after. But uh, I thought Odegaard was one of our better players. He had an assist. Nice ball carry and, and pass. Um, what did you think? 
Yeah, so I, I thought Odegaard was fine. There were also some moments where like it was clear that the chemistry with, with him and others wasn't fully on. Um, it, it was it was sort of a difficult game for him in the sense that like obviously our progression everything wasn't super clean he was going to be the player that was staying higher up and so the ball wasn't going to get into him regularly uh, Blanco I thought had probably even a bigger problem getting on the ball at least in the first half of the first 60 minutes before all the Rangers made all their subs because Rangers had a pretty clear defensive plan so we kind of talked about their pressing but when they like receded into a mid block it was often fashion junior. Uh, but sometimes, like, it was a central midfielder stepping up. Like, they would shadow Blanco pretty hard. And it's not like we were doing anything special to try to get him free. So a lot of our progression was coming through Isco, dropping off, switching to the far side, and then losing the ball when it came to Odriozola. So I I don't know exactly how I judge Blanco on, on what happened today. Like, when he got a little bit more on the ball in the second half, he showed some nice passing range. I think we know who he is as a player and uh, this particular game was kind of a tough one for him because we expect him to be the one guiding everything. And in reality, most of it was going through Isco because Rangers were, were blocking him off and, and man-marking him. Matt, any thoughts on Odegaard and any score of the midfield? Um, I thought Odegaard physically looked good. Like In terms of his fitness levels, uh, he was pressing like a maniac, running around. I almost thought... Kind of to the point we talked about earlier with with the disorganization of the press. Like I just felt like sometimes he was running for running sake and not really running in the right spots and working hard instead of working smart. Um, and so I think those are things that could probably be modified. And just I, I felt like the the midfield three. It was so easy for Rangers to to play through them and to the lines between our midfield defensive line there was so much space that rangers was just having a field day playing in that area and being able to turn and go at our defense if we had one sloppy pass or if we lost the ball in our final third they were just ramming it right down our throats so i felt like in, from just a defensive solidity solidity perspective like we really struggled and i think that's kind of to be expected with the midfield we had out there but and, and just given how little time they played together but um, in terms of just on ball and, and the offensive contribution, I thought, I mean, obviously, Odegaard is going to be such a weapon on the counter. Like, if we can continue to, to use that play and that stem from the goal where he kind of hedges, waits, take a, takes a risk, doesn't take on any defensive responsibility and just waits at the top of our box, that can be, I mean, that can be really effective. Obviously, it's a high risk, high reward because you're letting, he's letting a, another opponent maybe potentially be a loose man in the in our box but if you get away with it like he did then you're free to go running a retreating back line and that's where Odegaard best like we all know him running at a retreating back line with options to play a pass that's that's him at his best and then for Isco I just felt I thought like some I thought some of his first touches were classic Isco and he got the ball under his feet and was able to kind of release quickly but and he had some good switches of play, but I don't know. I just there was nothing threatening, and as I mentioned earlier, I just felt like we never had any continuity with the ball. We never our possession. I felt like we never got more than like five, six passes together in the final third. Maybe a little bit towards the end of the first half and towards the end of the second half, but otherwise, it was it was kind of tough to watch. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, we were bad. I... It's 
I mean, it it kind of was bad. Yeah. I I just think like it's interesting too when you look at. I mean, it's not like we had we dominated possession, but we had more possession than them, like by fraction of 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 a percentage. But it was interesting because it didn't look like very good possession or proper build up or like the kind of possession you would envision with Isco and Odegaard together. And I do think the fact that like you know them getting carved defensively. And also not having many meaningful moments in build-up is like obviously a symptom of well, it's preseason and there's no synergy and there's barely any fitness and these players are new. One is from Castilla, one is returning from loan, and one is really just trying to get a hold of his career at this point. And uh, it's going to be a mess. Like, and I don't know. I'm really, really ignorant to what Rangers are doing. Um, I don't know like what we saw today. If you did, if I was like put in a Rangers trivia pub right now. And was asked to like answer a bunch of Rangers questions. I'd be last in the bar. I'd, I have no idea. Like I don't know if this was their best eleven. I don't know if this is like they were training ten years for this game. Maybe like the way it looked like it today, they had more synergy. Whatever it was, they played really good. Um, and by the way, welcome to all the Rangers fans who joined us on Twitter. We got uh, at one point during the game, I checked the managing notifications on Twitter, and it's like X person and two hundred others have followed you, and I, it, they were all Rangers fans. So welcome to all the Rangers fans, and in case any of you made it to this podcast, welcome to you as well. Um, stick around for much more Rangers content for the 2021-2022 season on the Management Madrid podcast. Um, but they looked really good in doing so, and uh, but but so that's kind of why I tried to shift my focus a little bit towards like the individual performances of this of this game, just to see like where they are physically and stuff. So. I think Matt brings up a lot of good points about Odegaard. Um, and, uh, I mean, the goal that we scored is kind of like, I mean, ironically, because Odriozola's clearance was terrible, but it somehow finds its way to Odegaard in the perfect position. And he launches this ball-carrying counter, which is exactly where you want him. And that's where he was at his best with Real Sociedad and Vitesse and at Arsenal in some moments. I think the problem with it is that especially if you envision Zidane's Real Madrid guys, you're not going to get Odegaard in a position like that much because a lot of Zidane's Real Madrid was trying to break down low blocks who don't give you those transition opportunities. Um, And so I don't know how much of this we're going to see, but I did want to pick your brains about one thing. Um, And I don't think the three of us discussed this together. Ancelotti, at one point in the past like three weeks or so, and this was after his initial press conference, he said it afterwards, he said something like, um, I want this team to be more direct and to and to be comfortable playing without the ball. Or so, I, I'm paraphrasing, I'm butchering it actually, but it was something to that effect about having less possession and playing more direct. Um, and to me, the way I interpreted it, just basically by revisiting Carlos' old games, was that a lot of the ways he you can generate transition opportunities when a team doesn't give you those is to press more. Uh, and when you win the ball high up the pitch, when the defense is backpedaling, it's kind of like a transition opportunity because it's you're not facing a low block in that moment anymore. And I thought maybe that's part of this, part of what he meant. And so my question to you guys is: Do you think, and we can start with you, um, because I cut you off. Do you think that what we saw today on the Rodrigo goal, where Odegaard carries the ball or has opportunities like that, we'll see a lot of this season, or do you think those moments will be hard to come by? I hope so, but I do think kind of like what you were mentioning, we'll have to force those. And that's just kind of more and more what the modern game is about for teams who 
face sides who are more comfortable sitting off because they recognize you have the greater talent is you have to manufacture that. And either that's through pressing, like you mentioned, or being so good in possession and having all the things worked out that you're just able to clearly progress through a block and get a team backpedaling like it's a counterattack when it wasn't. Um, I was so what one thing I do think we'll see a little bit more of is like that possession thing, not necessarily because I think Ancelotti is going to like institute this like positional structure that Zidane didn't. That's not really Ancelotti's style, but because he will emphasize players like Odegaard, there will be maybe a little more emphasis on playing between the lines, which also might be what he means by by being more direct. Whereas with Zidane, it was always very flat and controlled. Um, partially because of personnel, partially because of how much freedom Zidane lets his sides have, but also because I think that's what he just emphasized. He really wanted to control games that way. And as we had less and less offensive talent, that became even more important because defense became our thing, right? We were partially able to control uh, games without the ball, and we sat off more and more into like mid-blocks and, and did less pressing and stuff. Um, so I, I think that could be a way, but if if we're seeking to also do this via high-pressing, Forget this game where the pressing wasn't good. That is probably like the weakest part of Ancelotti's track record as a tactician, where as like the modern game has gone on, Ancelotti didn't really have like pressing tactics in his bag in the way it was in a modern sense, as most coaches didn't have, because pressing is just drastically different than than what it used to be. Like I, I haven't seen much since Napoli through to Everton to suggest that Ancelotti has like kind of figured it out and he's an especially good pressing coach so maybe maybe he does intend to to use like younger legs and more energetic sides someone like Odegaard to go out and high press teams but that's something I'm less optimistic on and I'll need to see some games you know like six seven good games like that to change my mind and be like okay you know he he's kind of figured it out I, I think it's more going to come from the possession side and letting someone like Odegaard be, in, be have more minutes, receive between the lines, and turn relievers. I did think it was interesting that, like, you know, and and Matt mentioned some of the the pressing sequences where, um, or, or sorry, or uh, that Odegaard uh, had where he maybe he was running a little bit too full force and he was, uh, you know, maybe. Hold on, I'm, I'm gonna. Are you are you guys all here? Matt fell off the call, I think, and he thought I stopped. Um, the amount of editing I'm gonna have to do in this podcast is insane. <laughs> uh, okay, so hold on. I think so. Matt's not here. All right, I think I'm good. Oh, you're back. Okay. Jesus. All right. Because uh, it said it said Matt joined, which means he fell off, and I didn't get cut off. I no, well, no, I no. couldn't hear you for a while, so then I didn't know if you guys weren't answering. So I was like, "Oh, it might just be me." So I ex- exited and then tried to uh, get back on. Uh, yeah, I heard everything Holm said. Kian, could you hear? Yeah, okay. I heard everything you so said. So maybe yeah. it's just me. So I'm gonna count us back in, and I'll I will kind of pick up where Om <laughs> left off. Okay. Yeah. This I'll, is literally this... worse than Ram. <laughs> yeah. This is, this is worse than Ram just broadcast, <laughs> and that's. Uh, we didn't even mention the broadcast yet. God damn it. I watched on Twitch. I don't know. It wasn't that bad. Yeah, the YouTube on one was a lot better. The Real Madrid TV one was, like, fucking awful. Yeah. It was, like, 2006 YouTube days. Also, uh, just to give you guys a heads up to make this even more ridiculous, there's a dog in the cottage right beside me. I'm recording this on a bed because there's nowhere else to record. And there's a dog. It's not my dog. It He's starting to whine now on the bed. And I don't know what to do with this dog. It's 
so I want to finish recording <laughs> before this dog starts barking. Uh, all right, so I'll count us in, and then I'll take over from what Ohm said, and then Matt, you can go after that. Uh, okay, three, two, one. I do think it was interesting to talk about Odegaard's pressing too, because Matt did mention that you know there were a few sequences where it looked like Odegaard maybe was working harder rather than working smarter. And obviously with pressing, you know that it has to be a synergetical thing. It has to be one entity pressing together. And if it's not, then you're screwed. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I, I get that. And I, I do think like it's probably okay for him to go a little bit full tilt here just to get fitness levels and sprint. I would say like, you know, that thing that we always talked about with Odegaard at his previous clubs where he's always pointing people where to go, like marshalling, the the other players behind the ball to go to press behind him or making sure they know where to press and his pressing numbers have always been through the roof um today there were actually a moments there were moments in the first half where he like single-handedly was able to get the team in the right spots he was sprinting full force and everyone kind of followed him and he was able to get everyone in the right spot um so i think that's impressive i do think this is one thing to be encouraged about more than anything is that Odegaard, because of a style of play, I think it would be a shame not to have a more high-pressing team this year, especially given that Cruz is awesome at it, Benzema's awesome at it too, and Modric is too. And and so we have the players for it. And I think Odegaard is going to be someone who can really help us in that regard. Yeah, and yeah, I think I think you think about Feve Valverde as well. I mean, there's another a great presser. So we do have the players. Um, it's just about we we got to give Carlo time in that regard because to get those habits put in place, to get a, a press working and make it cohesive and get everyone in in unity, it, it takes time. Like it's not something that happens overnight. So I think in that regard, we're going to have to probably be patient with with Carlo, and it, there are going to be growing pains. We'll probably. All right, sorry, I, I think I lost you guys there, but. What I was saying was that Carlo just needs some time to, to if we are going to be a pressing team, he's going to need some time to to get those habits in place, to get the team, um, as you said, Kian, like it's it's a uniform, it's a it's a unit, it's a unity thing. Like these guys all need to be working together, moving together, pressing together, and so that's going to take some time, and uh, we're probably going to get carved the first three games of La Liga or whatever, however many games, and we're probably going to get exploited, and our midfield's not going to look that great, but. If he does try to implement this system, like we're, we're going to have to be patient in that regard. Um, where do you guys think is important to hit on now? Um, is there any like I'll be really honest with you? There's a lot of like sporadic notes I have that are that are just a little bit too sporadic enough. They're just sporadic enough that there wasn't really a clear theme with them. It was just a lot of chaos and very like individual things and moments, especially in the second half. But are there any overarching larger themes that you guys feel like we didn't hit? Um, for me, I guess two things. I thought one, um, Jovic, I, I know people are giving him a lot of flack because he, he wasn't involved really at all. And it's kind of a typical Jovic game we've seen with Real Madrid, but I thought he, I thought he was all right. Like in the, in the regard that he, he dealt with Rangers two center backs really well. He was asked to be a target man, which is for those who've been following Jovic, like that's not really what he is. He's not a target man. Um, and so he's playing with his back 
matches. They were clean. They were good. And so, oh, holy shit. <laughs> you're, you're back. <laughs> it, you, you're back now. Don't worry. It wasn't. I'm this not. That, this one I'm not going to edit because you, you came back really quickly. You're good. Just keep keep going. Keep going. Okay. They were his clean. They were good. And like, I just felt, I do think sometimes like his movement and like how he analyzes some of the other players in midfield, like how he can understand their movement. He struggles with that. Like, I think he, he kind of gets in the way sometimes, but otherwise he's, he's playing in a role that isn't his best role. And I thought he had moments where he, you could see his skill set. It's just, it's so fleeting. Like we don't get to see enough of him. He did have to drop deep a couple times in this game to just get involved. I and I think that was it was lot it was pretty tough for him. Like we can talk about his uninvolvement and I understand that too. And you know, if this was Benzema, he'd be more involved just because of the nature of his style of play. Um but there were a couple of things in here. One, he didn't have service and two, he needed to drop deep to get anything and, and the possession and build up structure wasn't great to begin with. So this was a, a tough one to yeah. judge judge him on, I think. Yeah. Um, what about you? Did you have any other themes you wanted to get across? I don't know about themes. I was quite impressed just by how comfortable Sergio Ribas looked mm-hmm. as a striker when he came on for Jovic. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I've I been quite open about the fact that Casilla is not my thing, so maybe he's gotten more reps there than I know. But my understanding is like he's been a winger, right? He, he's played both sides. And he's looked really good there. And from what the minutes I've seen from him, like I thought it was really promising. And uh, I, I have high hopes for him. But the fact that he was just able to come in there and then do what Jovic was kind of struggling with, with basically everything that was happening in terms of progression and not being able to play between the lines, et cetera, et cetera. I was not, imp- I, I was not only impressed by the fact that he looked comfortable in, I guess, like a vague sense and was dropping off, but he ne- seemed to know exactly when to drop off, to receive, get in a pocket in relation to to how other players are positioned. He got between the lines like a good like five or six times and it helped our progression. We got into the final third. And I, I was just impressed with that. Like that was, it, I just didn't expect to see that. I mean, I know he's a player that from the wings has always been really good at linking play, receiving in the half spaces, but that's not really the same thing as going and being, okay, you got to be a center forward and you have to be smart with your movements and know how to drop from more central positions, but then also go back to occupy the last line. Like he had one where he did that, played it out wide, then got in the box and he had a header. Like that was impressive. Like I, again, like that's not nearly enough evidence to be like, Oh man, like this guy, he should be like our second choice striker or something, but it's just not something I expected. And I I'm impressed like that. That's a sign of some strong intelligence mixed with technical quality. I'm super excited about Aribas, everything. Like he had, I also had a couple of touches in traffic that were pretty good. I, I, admittedly, a, one or two of them were pretty heavy, and I think he could have done better on the Marcelo cross, but maybe that's not his natural game is to, to head crosses that come into him. But I'm super excited about Aribas, uh, Aribas' career in general. Um, I will say, like, I, I, I know I spent a little bit of time talking about being worried about Marcelo was something that lingers for this season as someone who's not going to necessarily improve enough to justify his playing time if he plays a lot. Uh, Isco's another one, like, I just feel like he's a little bit too... Even even last season, during the thick of the season when he came on, he looked a little bit leg-heavy to me um, and just making kind of careless passes. And, you know, I, I think 
I actually liked his defensive effort in a couple sequences in this game. Um, but that's another one that I, I worried about. Like, you need a really good version of Isco if you're going to, if he's going to stay in the team and there's all this competition he has on that side. I, I, I'd like to see a better version of Isco. I'm not going to judge him on this game alone, obviously, but um, I'd like to see a better version of Isco. So, um, another guy too who not going to judge him on this game alone, but he, I definitely am skeptical of whether or not he has the level for Real Madrid is uh, Victor Trust. I just I mm-hmm. wasn't very impressed in this match. I thought he was poor on the ball when he was pressed, and then. When he got isolated, one v one defending, sometimes he overcommit. It was easy to uh, easy to play through him or beat him. And so, I'm I'm gonna be honest. I'm worried about the center back depth, especially when Varane goes, because that's it's not a if if we're keeping with Vanavieja, Chust or or Gila, like none of those guys really. I mean, I think we all know it. None of those guys really fill us with confidence. And it's maybe it's just something we have to suck up for one year. But it's it it is a little concerning. Well, let's see with Varane too. Who knows? You know, it's not confirmed yet. He'll go to Manchester United. I think there's still like there's a percentage, albeit under fifty percent, but there's a percentage he could he could stay at Real Madrid still. Um, I I guess one guy we didn't really talk about who played a good chunk of this game was Lucas Vasquez on the right. Uh, a couple moments where he where he tried to connect with Odriozola, who was providing overlaps. Um, I don't know. I don't have much on Vasquez. He had a couple dribbling sequences on the right, a couple cut-ins. Well, he gave away. He's the one that lost the ball oh, true. on, on yeah, Rangers' yeah. second goal. I don't know what he was doing in kind of like an Antonio. I thought it was Antonio Blanco at first, and then when I saw the replay, it was Lucas Vasquez, and he was for some reason in that position. Because he was receiving a pivot position. <laughs> I don't know why. I feel like we've laughed about this a couple times. It happened last season too, where he just like in these random spots that he doesn't belong, and then loses the ball. I think he was probably, probably like banking on the fact that he was going to buy himself a foul in that situation. He just he just didn't because it seemed like a clean tackle, but I don't know. Um, I would have liked to um, gotten better replays in this game. Like I would have liked to. I, maybe I'll go back and watch it after this podcast. But typically, I like to go back and watch all the goals and rewind it like far back to see where the the run started and. Maybe where Rodrigo was on the goal we scored to see where his off-ball run started from and how he got there. And I, I like to go and see all that. I haven't really seen that for this game, but um, you know, I, I suppose it's okay. We didn't bring our A game, not only with uh, the coverage, but also the the podcast. Since we're like at the end of the podcast, we can kind of admit now that this podcast was a disaster. Because if you listen this far, I'd be curious to know if you noticed how bad it was or if we edited it together good enough. Because we had. The connection dropped like a hundred times and we restarted the conversation. We re- reset things. We kept some things in there. Um, we're not going to tell you that at the beginning of the podcast when we do the Manscaped intro, but uh, this was a disaster. So I'd be curious to know if you guys noticed it, how disastrous it was or if it was pretty seamless. Um, do you guys have anything else you want to get across before we, we uh, get to Grant and Omen part two? We, 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 we mentioned Lunin, right? Oh, Lunin was good. Oh, I- yeah, we didn't. We I did not mention ask him. you guys. I, I did want to ask you guys. Like, do you <laughs> speaking about the it, podcast? Being bad? <laughs> I think his distribution with his feet still got a lot of room to improve, but everything else he looked great. I mean, is it really worth keeping this talented of a goalkeeper to play? Literally, he played one game last season. Like, 
that's all he played. <laughs> so is it really worth keeping him on the bench for that? No. I mean, I, maybe we make a deeper run in the Copa del Rey, but still, what, that three, four, five games? Like, it's just not worth it. I, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think he needs to play somewhere. He's not going to play at all. Even in the Copa del Rey, it's not a guarantee. Om, are you there? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't have. Okay, you're just, I just wanted to. Oh, you're sure actually touched, there, but you have nothing to say. Looting. All right, all right. So, yeah, as usual, but I, I just want to make sure we touched upon the one guy everyone was most hyped about because if we didn't, people would be on our ass. Right. Um. Well, so Omar, are you in agreement? You think he should go out on loan? I mean, I don't think it's going to happen, but would you? I think you... that probably makes the most sense. Yeah. Um, if he's not going, if he's not going to get any games at all, like that, yeah. I mean, I think there is at greater value or less impact being to your game if you're a secondary goalkeeper. Um, but if you're literally only going to get one game, then yeah, go off. But if if we're going to keep him, it should be you know, like a cup competition versus league thing, right? So you have a good sample to compare against the two keepers and then decide, okay, next season, who's going to be like, like a Ter Stegen, Claudio Bravo thing, you know, a Casillas Diego Lopez thing, like somewhere where, where Lunin could get significant minutes and opportunity to prove himself. If it's just, you know, watching Courtois do stuff from the bench, I, I don't think it benefits anyone. Um, shout out to also we're talking about hype and stuff. Shout out to Ryan Kent and um and uh, Fashion Sakala Fashion Junior. Yeah, so I hope these guys get paid. They look great today. And uh, it, Fashion Sakala, I know is a good player from what other people have told me, and they're actually surprised that Rangers were able to capture him. But just the fact that his parents like decided to call him Fashion. Is, is just like a sign that he's going places. And then, yeah, like I, I'm just impressed with this Rangers side. I think this is pretty reflective of who they are. Uh, Gerard has like been highly rated for a while now by people who, who followed him. And, you know, they think he's like, he's not just another Lampard, basically, to, to put it another way. And I think what we saw today is pretty reflective of the, the type of football they play and, and how well constructed they are. And uh, obviously, like they played a terrible team on the day, but. That's what you'd expect a side to do to a terrible team, where they probably could have like scored three or four goals and won comfortably. So, I, I that honestly kind of made the the friendly worth watching at least in the first half, and uh, I, I had a good time watching them. Yeah, they were uh, they were they were awesome to watch. Hope he, hope they both get paid. They're both only twenty four, so uh, let's see how they're. Maybe it's he's from Zimbabwe. Maybe it's not fashion. Maybe it's like I don't know. Fashion. All right, this podcast, this podcast, can, uh, can this podcast can't, can't get any <laughs> I don't any even worse. know what the hell he's talking about. <laughs> sign up right there. Let's sign up right there. All right. On that, on that note, patreon.com slash managing Madrid is where you go to get more connection issues, <laughs> to get more bad takes on player pronunciations. And uh, on Tuesday, Matt and I will be back to, I think, review some of the Olympic stuff. Uh, and I'm sure... It's you know it's possible Grant and Omo will also do another Feminino segment for Tuesday as well. So that will be over on patreon.com slash managing Madrid. And we play against AC Milan soon. That is on next next Sunday. So we'll do another post-game show next week. <laughs> All right. So we'll see you guys on Tuesday. And thank you, gentlemen. Over to Grant and Omo part two. Stick around. Uh, thank you. We'll chat soon. Take care, guys. Thanks, guys. Take care. Yeah. <laughs>
All right, before we send you guys over to part two with Grand and Ohm, wanted to give a quick shout out to our patrons. Thank you so much for your support. Wanted to give a specific shout out to our $10 plus patrons who get a specific shout out as follows. Brandon Alvarez, Bella Chow, Willie Reed, Wei Parent, Wamik Jamal, Umar Mahadi, Tyler Simon, Tyler Dixon, Tobias Royal Botcher, Tahmid Kalam, Sujai Wani, Sumanchu Singh, Sad Omar, Rovi Tagiev, Santos Rosano, Sergio Arispe, uh, Shabazz Sharapov, Said Mahad, Rovi Tagiev, Raul Gutierrez, Raga Potluri, Phoenix, Oscar Barrera, Nico Laxo, Nick Ribeiro, Nick Lauer, Muxi Thangal, Mowgli, MJ Diego, Michael Zinberg, Marin Myrtle, Leon Stavronakis, Kunal Tilakar, Kevin Rivera, Karen Scherer, John Fernandez, Jeff Thurston, Jason Fitz, Graham Gerard, George Tarazi, Frederick Ratahiro, Frederick Sundros, Faisal Hamdan, S.A. Davisito, Eric Rogers, Ilo Enriquez, Edward Sossman, Daniel Williams, Christian Toft, Christian Acosta, Charles Williams, Brendan Powers, Brandon Stevens, Austin Fiori Erdman, Arnab Mukherjee, Anthony Lombardi, Anirud Singh, Alexis Saniceros, Al, Adam Dorsey, Varun, Nick DeStefani, Fabian Moreno. Thank you guys so much for your support. And here is part two. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to the second edition of Las Blancas podcast coverage of the Olympics. And it is the second edition because we are covering the second round of Olympics action. And there were a number of games today, and we're going to touch on all of them to very degrees it's honestly one of the wildest match days i've ever seen in football in my time watching there was just an insane number of goals going on and yeah i i don't think it's really possible to touch on all of it and cover everything in one podcast to do justice justice to it all so obviously the bulk of what we're going to talk about is sweden's force to victory over australia because obviously as real madrid podcast what we care most about and who we care most about is Kosovaria Aslani and her performances. And so that will be the bulk of the podcast, but we will also just give you some, some overviews on, on the other games. And mind you, we weren't able to pay equal attention to all of them because it's not like this is all neatly set up like the uh, first couple of weeks of the Euros was, right? Like all these games just overlapping all over each other. Also starting at like 3 30 a.m. in the morning, so we're not exactly at our mental best to capture all of this. And both Grant and I are, are pretty exhausted by now, so just bear with us if uh, we, we stumble over words or have to correct ourselves or something. It, it, should, it should be fine, though. So, Grant, before we jump into Sweden, how does one even begin to, like, sum up what happened today, the madness of all the goals? Yeah, it was, it was a defense-optional olympic match day i mean i think they said there were 31 goals in this match day and there's only what one two three four five six matches so you've got 31 goals in six matches and one of those matches was a one zero so every other so every team in this match day scored except japan the hosts it was madness there were some beautiful goals there were some really atrocious defending some combination of both it was a very wild, wild match day. So let's just get straight into Sweden, Australia. And this somehow wasn't even the wildest game, but it, it was definitely up there in terms of like the back and forth of the scoreline, the back and forth of the momentum of the game, the quality of the goals. I mean, we'll talk about Fidelina 
Rofo's strike and how amazing that was and the fact that it might not even have been the best goal of the day. Let's just quickly, just so we can kind of get all the events out there and kind of set the table for the larger discussion about the match. Brent, I probably should have like told you I was going to do this to you beforehand, but are you comfortable just quickly going through all the goals and just letting us know how it, how it kind of all went down and, and chronologically how it all, all happened? I can, I can try, and I might need a little help, but we can do this. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, Australia started the game pretty well, and just when I thought they were getting a foothold, you get this nice movement where Kosovar Aslani picks off a ball in the final third, drives forward, goes to Jakobsen, squares to Frida, Fridolina Rolfo, who puts it in the back of the net, makes it 1-0. 16 minutes later, who else but Sam Kerr, you know, every, uh, everybody's favorite striker, not polarizing at all, ties the game, and we go in at halftime at 1-1. Then we come back out, and Sam Kerr gets just absolutely the easiest header she'll ever get in her life, cross past the goalkeeper. She has to basically just touch it. It's in the back of the net, and we're looking at this, and we're like, oh, what happened to Sweden? Maybe that big first match day wasn't a true showing of, what this Sweden team is, and then they came roaring back. Lena Hertig ties it up 2-2 in the 52nd minute, and she gets absolutely clobbered as she finishes it. And I think that was Jakobsen's second assist, another little cutback into the 18-yard box. Then Fridolina Rolfo gets the ball at the top, a little like five yards out of the 18, and just hits an absolute thunderbolt. Beautiful strike makes it three two. Sam Kerr wins a pe- or no, she doesn't win the penalty. I think Ford gives it away. Kerr steps up to the penalty spot. Lindahl makes a really really impressive save, even though it was an atrocious penalty down the middle. Sam Kerr has another really good opportunity to get one back. Then Stina Black Sinius scores in the 82nd minute, coming on as a substitute with a beautiful ball from Kosovari Aslani, who was quiet for most of the game, but delivered when it mattered, and it ended up being 4-2. Yeah, and in her 150th international appearance, she picks up the assist that essentially seals the game. And as I'm guessing all of you gathered with Grant describing just the basic goal mouth action, this game could have swung either way. And it's kind of a chaotic tactical one to describe. I'm not sure it's such a clean narrative tactically as the Sweden versus US game was just because there were just so many segments where everything just looked so different. And I think part of that was just down to the fact that Sweden were not quite as switched on as they were versus the US. We talked about how in the first game, that 3-0 win, like Sweden just played the perfect defensive game, right? Everything was on. Jakobsen came alive in a way she hadn't for months, et cetera, et cetera. Slani, perfect transition passing. And, you know, it, it's obviously not to say Sweden played poorly today because I don't know how you could score four goals with the types of chances they had and, and say you played poorly, but it was more in spots. It was not a consistently dominant performance, which is why if Sam Kerr had finished a penalty, finished her other chance, it, it could have been 4-4. Four, four. Right. And I don't know if that's necessarily concerning for Sweden, but it is, it is a sign, right? Like you just can't take this, this group for granted. You can't take Australia for granted. 
um, you know, the, the level of these teams, while I wouldn't say necessarily equal across all, like people can beat people like in, in ways maybe we don't see in, in the, the international side for men's football, at least in this Olympics where teams seem willing to be going gun bla- guns out like blazing, right? Which is what we've seen so far and which is what we saw this match day, completely antithetical to what we've seen in the Euros and past tournaments where a greater and greater like conservative mindset developing into the biggest teams like France, England, et cetera, et cetera. You, you just don't see it with these sides at least. Um, not with Sweden, not with the United States, and certainly not with Australia. Though I don't know if you, you, could, you could really call them powerhouse. Obviously, Sweden and U.S. Are, are the two in this tournament. Grant, like, how would you assess like, the overall quality of Sweden's performance before we get into, like, I guess, a little bit more of the nitty-gritty about like, what the flow of the game was, where they were bad, where they were good? Yeah, I think it's interesting you mentioned that, you know, it's weird to say that a team didn't play all that well when they scored four goals, but it almost seemed like every time that Sweden started to play well, they scored. And I mean, that both of Rolfo's goals were really nice, but only one came from a really good passage of play. The other was just an absolute laser. Pertig's goal came from a really nice piece of play. But Sweden's performance was really interesting. I mean, I talked about last time how you can't really play that high-pressing style throughout all these matches because of the three-day turnaround repeatedly throughout this tournament. And so I wasn't necessarily surprised to see them sit off a bit in a mid-block, but they just didn't seem to have the same type of urgency throughout the match that they did for the United States game. And the defense was definitely not as solid. And I mean, you get... Magda back um, from injury, so she's working back in and everything, but obviously she's, she's a world-class center back and will we'll get there. And I'm not blaming any of the goals on her necessarily, but they, they were not strong defensively, I didn't think. I, like you said, Sam Kirk could have had a hat trick or four goals, and you know they probably should have had a second penalty early in that first half where Hannah Glass just – pleaded Sam Kerr in the back and they went to VAR and I don't really know how they didn't give that a penalty because it seemed like every person that was watching um, thought it was a penalty. So yeah, it was interesting because I didn't think they played all that well, but they came away with four goals, which is a sign of a good team that even on your not so great days, you're able to beat quality sides because although Australia hasn't been very good as of late, historically they're a good side and if you look at the talent that they have you know they they could put up a fight in this group yeah and it's interesting to me that we had so much action but for me at least until the first goal 20 minutes in it just felt like there wasn't that much going on in terms of like chances and back and forth like i just thought we were gonna get a fairly like similar rhythm throughout the game right which is you know, both sides will have a possession game against whatever block it is. And then it's just both sides like working solutions, more patient possession play, not as end to end. And like what, what we saw for like the first 20 minutes was both sides not really having figured out, you know, how to break through the block in, in set possession exactly. And then you have 
that Fridolina Rolfo goal. And I wouldn't say Sweden exploded from there, but I, I just started to kind of get the vibe like, okay, they're figuring out this defensive structure for Australia. Uh, by the way, they were in a 3-4-3 uh, formation um, and they defended in like a 5-3-2 mid-block, sort of 5-2-3 mid-block sort of way, which I found quite interesting. It's something that we'd seen a fair bit in the Euros actually. And I felt that it had, had ended up coming up short just because like, yeah, I mean, I understand the point where those three players up top, they sit off, they look to block off those passing lanes, but there's just such a huge responsibility on them. And there's no one really else to take care of that, right? So if you split those players, the double pivot is under massive pressure, right? They have to like cover a huge swath of central space. And if you play wide, the wing backs have to step up. And all of a sudden you have a three versus three with the center backs and you can play balls into the channel to Sophie Jakobsen and Rolfo and they can go one versus one against the center backs, which I don't know is exactly what you want, right? That's probably what Sweden want, right? Again, they're a team that likes to get out in transition and they can facilitate transition from set possession. They're going to do so. And just kind of after that goal, I felt like they were starting to get into that rhythm, right? So maybe not doing the thing that I saw like exploit the system heroes where you play it out wide, then you play it back inside to a central midfielder, and then you've like entered the block and progress play. Maybe a little harder for Sweden because, and we forgot to mention, they didn't go with the back three. They stayed with the exact same 4 2 3 1 formation, which was interesting. Talking about the 5D chess thing we were talking about last time. And so they, they had a double pivot in midfield. So maybe it's a little harder to exploit with those wing combos because you don't have midfield overload. But okay, they weren't doing that, but you started to see balls into the channel. You started to see a little more of those one versus ones. You, you started to see, like, especially Magda Eriksson step up, and we know she's a great passer. And she was just splitting the front three with vertical passes and finding players between the lines. It wasn't at like this insane rate, but it was happening. And it just felt like they were chipping away. You know, in between that 20 to like 35 minute period, Aslani getting more touches between the lines when previously. It just felt like she hadn't gotten any because, right, you mentioned she had a quiet game. It was very on and off for her, depending on the flow, which is kind of typical of her role. And I just felt like, okay, this, this is how it's going to go down, right? Sweden figured something out, and they're just going to continue to chip away, and that's how the victory is going to be, and they're going to win like 2-0 or something. And then what kind of felt like out of nowhere to me from that spell her scores kind of in the way you describe and then all of a sudden it just feels totally different right and the momentum is on Australia's side and they didn't really play like this super patient possession game but remember we were talking about last time with the back three with the U.S. and how that might help them find the far side again the caveat being Sweden just weren't nearly as on defensively in this game but I do feel like that back three made it a bit easier for Australia to work their way around the defensive structure and progress because they, I mean, they, they just switched play a lot more than the U S did, right? The U S got to the left side, they got to Sauerbrunn and they were stuck and they didn't, and, and I, they almost didn't even have the intention to switch play, right? Whereas Australia was a lot more side to side. They had the wing back, they had the right center back and they'd switch play and they'd move up and Sweden not being perfect and, and on their game as they were versus the U S that allowed Australia some moments. It allowed them to get into the final third, put crosses into the box. And when it's Kerr one versus one against the defender off ball movement, even if it's Magda Eriksson, 
she's one of the best and she'll find separation and she'll put put a shot on goal that's that's what makes her good that is her bread and butter and it was like it just flipped and all of a sudden australia started to get more of that kerr scores her second goal then literally four minutes later sweden equalized and it's just like the flow is all over the place i don't even know how to assess things tactically anymore that second half up until that point had been way more transitional and then kind of up the point up to the point of like rolfo's goal i just felt like or honestly after kerr scored her second it just felt like sweden flipped the switch right like that gradual sense that they were breaking the block down just it, they just started almost breaking it at will and applying tons of pressure in the final third and that's how they ended up getting the next two goals and then from there right obviously australia it, it's just like all of those elements came together where suddenly both sides couldn't really defend anymore both sides were using their strategies to progress in the final third and then it ended up falling australia's uh sorry sweden's way definitely didn't fall australia's way and that was just a weird thing for me because it's not based on those first like 35 minutes it's just nothing signaled that the game was necessarily just going to open up the way it did and honestly the thing that surprised me the most was that burst you know up into when when sweden got back on top with their next two goals when they just started breaking the block with ease and i was like where the hell was this for the last like 50 minutes or so where it looked like you guys were like struggling and chipping away and all of a sudden it's like you're just like all right let's do this and so it's a very weird game to analyze. I'm not sure how many conclusions can be taken from it in terms of like how effective Sweden's possession game is. It was just so many segments of, and if you really think about tiny samples, there's like 10 to 20 minute segments of a lot of different stuff happening and play looking so different that it's just one of those where you'd be like, this is, this is what international knockout football can be like sometimes. And it turned out every single other game was going to be like this. Yeah, and just to go back to your point about these three center backs or the three back for Australia, I was kind of confused or surprised because normally when you see a three back, you see three center backs and then wing backs kind of able to drop into that five back. And it was surprising to me. And like you said, it did help them move through or get around Sweden's block get around their pressure if they did apply it but it was strange to me that you put ellie carpenter in that back three she is a good defender but she's one of their most dangerous attackers going forward and she usually plays right back i think she was player of the match in australia's first match against new zealand even though sam kerr scored and assisted she's really really good dangerous getting back and forth and i thought you kind of limit her while also putting her out of position defensively when lining up in the three back like this. It, it was kind of just strange to me. Um, I don't know how much you have to say about that, how much you've watched Australia in the past. But yeah, I, I, I understood the change to go to that three back, but I didn't really understand why you wouldn't put Ellie Carpenter more in that wing back. Maybe it's just, you know, you're trying to get Rasso, Ford, Kerr, Carpenter, all of these players on and this is how you can make it work it was just strange to me i really have no idea maybe they really valued having someone good on the ball on the side because they knew they were going to switch to you and you needed to be like decisive on the ball and 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 be able to have quality because that was your kind of out 
of a potential Sweden sideline trap, which I do believe they were trying to do in the beginning before, like, you know, the game just kind of got out of control. The other thing could be like, she could just be doing like an elbow back type role, which is just switching back and forth between being a fullback to being a center back. And it allows you to switch between back fours and back threes. Though I didn't really see it happen that much. There were a couple of times where I thought, Hey, this kind of looks like a back four, but mostly they were building from a back three. So I, that's the most I can say about it because I have really not watched Australia at all. I, I mean, you, you know more than me to be quite honest. So if you're confused, there's probably a good reason for that. And, and maybe probably have to investigate a little further to figure out what the reasoning was, but I, I, I think it worked to a certain extent. And if, and that's the thing, we don't know if Sweden are going to continue with this formation, but it's probably something I would be thinking about if I'm um, any of their opponents going forward, like I should have that in my back pocket and maybe use an elbow back. Right. So if we see, and, and we don't know which how Sweden is going to come out. We just say, okay, this is how I'm going to line up. If it's in this like four, two, three, one, I need it to be a back three. If it's a three, four, three, and I don't want that also to be a back three, then you go and, and you play like in, in a back four or whatever. Obviously, it requires you to have that player, but it's just something I'd think about um, and what this made me think of. I don't have that much more to say like tactically about it. I just forgot one thing, which is like, I was quite concerned about Australia being exploited with those wing patterns. And I will say, especially in the second half, I thought the wide forwards did a better job of actually stepping out um, to the fullback. And if like there was rapid switches of play, it would have exposed them pretty quick, but they showed some good discipline there to, you know, not, have the the wing back need to step all the way out, which is what is allowing those channel balls in one versus ones. Just a slight nuance that I don't know how much of a difference made, just given the dynamic of the game at that point. But it was it was a good little adjustment, I think. And I don't know if it holds up over time. It's why this is not my favorite defensive structure. I'd rather go five three two or something like that. Uh, but but it happened, and yeah, I just I just wanted to note it because I I was mentioning all the other tactics. If you don't have more to say, Grant, take us into what you thought about Aslani's performance, or you can mention other stuff about the game. I've got one more thing. I don't know exactly what stream you're watching. I think I was on Fubo Sports, but the announcers at the beginning of the match said Aslani was making her 150th appearance, which were all consecutive. I don't know if this is true, if they threw in a word that they didn't mean to do, but I think she started with the Swedish national team 13 years ago. And if these 150 appearances were consecutive, that is one of the craziest things I've ever heard. I'll have to do some research into whether that was a mistake. If I misheard something at what, 4 a.m. in the morning. But um, I was pretty surprised to hear that. But what does consecutive mean? As in she's played every single international game? I believe so. But I'm not 100% sure. It was weird. The wording of it was weird. It kind of, I, I was like taking some notes and heard it and like lifted my head up and like, what? So, um, I mean, I highly doubt that's possible, but you never know. I'll have to, I'll have to get, um, get on Wikipedia, get on some of the Swedish websites and try and figure out what's going on there. Yeah, that's, that would be nuts. Eh. I, I, if you find something, we'll mention it on the next podcast. We do round. I mean, I feel like if that was true, people would have been making a lot bigger deal of it. But I swear, I heard it on the on the broadcast. I don't know. I, so this it was like just pre-match, been a right? Yeah, it, it was, was like pre-match. right before kickoff. 
So I'm yeah, not 100% I like, sure. I clocked in the game two minutes late, so I missed that. So I don't know. Like Grant might just be imagining things. I could be. I could be. Hallucinating at this point. Um, but what we didn't hallucinate was that this is a crazy game. And that I think this was, I don't think it was a bad assigning performance, but this wasn't quite the same that she, she did versus the U.S., right? And mainly because, again, if you're going to be a player who's between the lines, relies on that service to then go and provide service for others, the flow of the game, your ability to dominate the flow of possession or get transition going and the accuracy, the fact, all of that is going to affect uh, the involvement of someone like Aslani. And given how inconsistent it was, she was inconsistent in bursts. But also, I think when she got on the ball, it wasn't the... 100% like efficiency of actions that we saw versus the US. It was a it was a little rustier in what she was doing, but ultimately when you think about how inconsistent her involvement was and the fact that she released Jakobsen on a goal and she ended up assisting a goal, I think it, it, it ends up being a pretty strong offensive performance in terms of what she ultimately managed to contribute. Defensively, I don't think she was bad by any means, but this was not what we saw versus the U.S. Just because, in general, I think the structure just wasn't quite the same. The intensity wasn't quite the same. And when you could switch to the other side, Aslani's role and the marking she has on midfielders and stuff, and her stepping out to the center backs, it becomes less relevant. So I think it was a solid performance, but this this wasn't like the one where we're saying, "Oh, that might have been one of the best performances we ever saw from her." It wasn't that? This was more like I think seven point five eight max i'd go like in between seven to eight out of ten performance yeah and i imagine we'll see something similar from the entire swedish team if aslani even gets minutes against new zealand they've pretty much got that top spot locked up i don't think they'll have any problem with new zealand uh they did not look good today against the u.s and i wouldn't be surprised if uh sweden rest some of their big dogs headed into the knockout stage do we have any more we want to say about Sweden, Australia? Because that was the main one we had to talk about. I mean, I could just run through Group G really quickly. I mean, this is the group of death here. Sweden is sitting pretty at the top with six points, two wins out of two games, scoring seven goals, giving up two. Goal differential of plus five. The U.S. slid up to second place with a 6-1 win over New Zealand. They have three points, one win, one loss, and a plus two goal differential. Australia in third place with a negative one goal differential and three points. And then New Zealand is sitting at the bottom with a negative six goal differential and zero points. And that is who us, or, um, Sweden will take on on, I believe it is Tuesday, July 27th. Okay, so... Let's just go over the other games. I mean, the other one we'll talk about a little more in depth is U.S. New Zealand. Obviously, our own personal interest, but that's also the other game I paid the most attention to, and I don't want to pretend that have in-depth knowledge about other games that I don't. I, I, I didn't see Canada-Chile. I didn't see China-Zambia. I caught a bit of the other game. Grant, you caught something of those first two games, right? Yeah, so I, I had to write a little match report on Canada and Chile. You know. Canada pretty much dominated this from the out. Janine or Christine Sinclair won a penalty early. Janine Becky stepped up and hit the post, missed it. She ends up rounding the keeper on one goal, shooting into an open net on another goal. She gets two goals and a little bit of redemption. 
Then Canada give up a silly penalty in the 57th minute. Araya steps up, puts it away to score Chile's first Olympic goal. So congrats to them. But Chile um, has zero points through the first two games. Great Britain, Canada, and Japan really look to be in the driver's seat there. But Japan only has one point. So um, if Chile could maybe get a result in that last game against Japan, then maybe they could surprise the host, upset the host. But Canada and Great Britain look to be through on that front. Then you had China, Zambia, which I didn't watch much of. I just was getting constant goal updates. It ends 4-4. You've got Wang with a hat trick for China. Barbara Banda with her second consecutive hat trick. Never been done in Olympics before. She's tied with Christine Sinclair and Miedema. Banda and Miedema have scored six goals in this tournament. Christine Sinclair scored six goals in the 2012 tournament, for the, and that is the most that's ever been scored in an Olympics. So they've each got one more group game. At least Netherlands should be on to the knockout stage. So I would expect Miedema to be a front runner right now for that golden boot, especially coming up against China in the last group stage match. But, I mean crazy crazy result zambia had never showed up to a major tournament before they had never scored a major goal or a major tournament goal obviously and now barbara banda has six goals in two matches which is just incredible for zambia and just to touch one more bit on that zambia thing because i did see a lot of people especially um european based fans kind of ragging on zambia and chile you know they qualified for this tournament by by coming out on the top of their qualification. I think, you know, Zambia upset uh, Nigeria, who's usually a powerhouse in the African Confederation, to get here. And maybe if you're so irritated about this, we need to talk to UEFA about the qualification process because it, it, their qualification process is stupid. Like, it's based on the World Cup and whoever goes the furthest. Um, and I mean... If you had a qualification tournament, teams like France and Spain may be there instead of whoever, but they came across the U.S. early in the tournament and, you know, by the luck of the draw, just kind of got knocked out of that qualification. Um, UEFA needs, 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 needs to have a qualification tournament. Um, I think that it's really dumb to base qualification for the Olympics off of how you do in the World Cup, but that is, you know, Whatever. On to the Great Britain and um, Japan game. This game was by far the most boring, and I thought that they were going to ruin our goal streak for the day. It ends up being 1-0 to Great Britain. Ellen White scores again. Um, a lot of this game was just played in the midfield. Then they'd pass to Lauren Hemp. Then she'd cut it back. I didn't get to watch much of the second half, but it did not look like a super entertaining game and it played out about how I expected it to play out. Speaking of super entertaining games, Netherlands three, Bill three, and it opens in the third minute with one of the greatest goals I've ever seen, which is why I, I said, I, did, I don't know if Rolfo's long range strike was the best with Miedema. I, I don't even know how to describe it. Like she receives the pass like with back to goal and uses like, a back heel spin to just beat the defender and 
just put the shot away it was insane like that turn was insane crazy she's one crazy, of the best crazy. strikers in the world absolutely that was crazy and then this every, was, they had a free kick every, at the end of the game nuts. that also could have been up for goal of the match day right. i mean this one had all kinds of stuff to it yeah bloodworth with a crazy free kick i think rofos was personally better but uh we can have differences of opinion there it ultimately comes down to aesthetic but it was a top three goal of the day and two of them were in this game Miedema had another goal in the middle which was a header which was really i think a soft one like the, the it was completely on the goalkeeper you can't be conceding that one but uh, Miedema was there in the position she put the shot on goal and then on the other side you had Gabinia score a really nice goal where she kind of played a one-two in the box first a through ball and then the interesting thing with obviously no one was talking about because no one cares about this type of shit but the type of run she made, I really like because a lot of strikers might just go near post immediately. And if the ball goes far post, that's it. Like you're, you can't get there. There's nothing you can really do to change that run. But what Dabinia does is she curves her run, starts off going far post. And then as it happens, she's able to check back inside because it turns out the ball is not going far post and she ends up scoring from there. And it's just a really subtle thing, like super instinctual, right? It's not like she was sitting there deliberating about it, but it's those types of like, when we talk about off-ball movement, I just feel like we just say it without really understanding what makes good off-ball movement, right? Like it's not just being there at the right time. Like, what does that even mean, right? Like, which I'm not, you know, begrudging people who say that because I understand, but like, Sometimes I feel like we really need to describe it more because I, I just feel like people don't really actually understand what like good off ball movement is, which is why we just kind of think all strikers, like if you score goals, you have great box movement. That's not necessarily the case, right? You, you score a number of different ways and there are some that thrive off of it. Now, I don't know what, enough about Dabinia's overall game to be like, okay, she, this is how she gets all of it. But in this particular play, she essentially keeps two options alive by curving that run and going far post first, which to me, like that played a huge part in creating that goal. And everyone obviously focused on the through ball because it was really nice and, and it had a huge impact on the play, but that, that was just a really smart run to me. And uh, it's, it's not one I'll forget for a while. Um, again, that's just me. Like I'm a weird person. No one else is. No, I, I think the same thing. That, but... And um you know, as for Dabinia, I think that she goes under the radar as one of the best players in the world. Just her ability to drive into space to constantly cause defense's problem, whether it be with the ball at her feet, whether it be with her off-ball movement. She can finish inside. She can play that defense-splitting pass. She can score outrageous goals from distance. She is a complete footballer. She is so, so good. And her and Martha are just the heart of this Brazil team that Pia Sunhaga has made really defensively sound, and they add still that, that typical Brazilian flair in the attack where they're just cutting up defenses, mixing in flicks and tricks. And I, there was a run that Dabinia made where she nutmegged two Dutch players on her way into the box. Um, I think if they tighten up this defense a little more, obviously in this match, both teams needed to tighten up their defense. Brazil could make a really deep run in this tournament. And if they do, it's going to be off the backs of Dabinha and Martha. 
I, this is like a really fun team, right? Ludmilla, I mean, obviously we have other players like Formiga that everyone knows, like a, a veteran. Seven, yeah, seven Olympics, every Olympic. That is just absolutely crazy. Nuts. And Ludmilla comes off the bench, right? She is starting striker for Atletico Madrid. We've been wowed watching her this season, and we know how good she is, that she has off the shoulder. She and scoring the third goal by, and speaking of really good off-ball runs, this one was defensive. So, like, she's running off the shoulder. I, I know I'm doing it out of order, but let, let's, just, let's just roll with it. Um, Marta scored so a penalty a really here. Ter- <laughs> now we're in order. Yeah, I'll, 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 I'll go back to that. I mean, I actually don't even remember how the penalty manifested, but it's Mila won it. Played. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Mila won it. Right. So I'll, I'll get to that. But in this one, I forgot who played the horrible back pass. So it was a really bad back pass. And that's what ended up allowing Mila to just knock it past the keeper, put it in, into an empty net. But the thing was, is like, you could tell while she was making that run off the shoulder, like she was not going to get there. And how many strikers are just going to like, just stop and be like, man, not, like I'm annoyed. The pass should have been better. And a shit back pass goes to the goalkeeper and they're safe. Ludmilla does not stop the intensity and pace of her run. In fact, increases it as she sees the d- delivery being released because instinctively she can tell, like, this is a shitty pass and I might be able to get there. And through the fact that she was just alert, aware, and kept going and was, like, sniffing out danger and just trying to keep the play alive, bang, that's a goal. And Brazil were actually in the lead at that point until the free kick. And so... That was a huge part of her impact. And then, as you mentioned, in that like mess of a way I got to talking about that third goal, she wins the penalty that Marta ends up converting. And when we talk about this being a fun side, a side that has a threat to go places, as you mentioned, I mean, this is why, right? Like the fact that you can bring on Ludmilla off the bench, she wins you two goals. Like that's a luxury that not a lot of teams have. And, uh, there was another incident somewhere in the first half where Marta stood for like five minutes on the spot thinking she had a penalty and then VAR ruled it out. Like just, uh, this was a game where everything was there and um, a bit of a shame that I didn't watch this one as intensely because it was coinciding with like US and everything. And that's what I decided to kind of like focus my attention on because I don't know if tactically there would have been like just these great structures to analyze, but I'm sure like, there, there would have been more nuanced stuff to pick apart what happened here. Um, but limited time, exhaustion, you know, I, I decided to save myself for this one. Maybe I'll come back to it later and, and see what I can say about it. But if you have not seen this game and you managed to catch it on replay, please do, if only for the entertainment factor, because this was one of the best games of the season. So let's go on to the U.S., which we will round it out with. And uh, so, like, 6-1. On the face of it, an easy win. I, I think it was an easy win, but it didn't like start out that way in the flow of the game. Before the game even started, people weren't happy because Vlad Karimanovsky went with a certain lineup with Carly Lloyd up top instead of Alex Morgan, Megan Rapino instead of Kristen Press. When you take out the best player in your team after you lost 3 0 to Sweden, that's obviously not going to make people happy. Julie Ertz was in for Mewis, not Haran, which I don't know if people expected. And then you had Tierna Davidson at center back and Emily Sonnet at right back. Grant, what did you think of the lineup going into the game? Yeah, I, I expected rotations. I actually expected more rotations. Um, obviously, this is an important game and the U.S. needed to win it. 
but all respect to New Zealand, the people on the bench for the U.S. play against the, a lot of these New Zealand players in NWSL, and overall, they they just have more time with the U.S. national team. New Zealand coming into this tournament hadn't played together in 16 months, and you know that is just really really difficult when you show up to a big international tournament you're playing Sweden Australia US and you haven't really had time to work together so I wasn't really surprised at all I I had no problem with it I think I probably would have rotated the midfield more maybe rested one of Haran or Lavelle but ultimately you know you need you need a statement win here you want some of your players to get the good feels back get on the score sheet which eventually happened for a lot of those strikers and attacking players so I think I think Vlatko was conservative in his rotation, but people act so strange after the anything happens negatively in the U.S. Women's National Team. We're spoiled. We're not used to it. So you know you lose to Sweden, you think, oh, we want to come back out here and win this, but we also have to beat Australia, and Australia is going to be a much tougher challenge than New Zealand. And yeah, offensively, I don't really know how much there is to say about this besides the fact that there were 10 million offsides. And maybe you want the chemistry of that to be a little better. I think Carly Light especially was really eager to get in behind. And given her age, she's definitely lost a step and was probably going too early. But even with all those offsides, six goals, tons of chances. Rose Lavelle had a monstrous game after I think she was kind of poor last time. Obviously, everyone was poor. But she was singled out, especially for all the turnovers. She was on song today. This is the Rose Lavelle we know and love. And it just felt like offensively, largely like the natural game that they play with, you know, the, the subs affecting things stylistically. Like, so Carly Lloyd will like come, you know, to play layoffs and, and all of that a lot because that's her style over Alex Morgan. And then we've already discussed like what Haran can do in left central midfield last podcast. And so it was all of that, but like offensively, it was fine. They, I mean, New Zealand really couldn't do much. It's not like they had a defensive structure anywhere near Sweden's, nor I think the personnel or like the organization chemistry. You mentioned them not playing together in 16 months. There's absolutely no way you can do what Sweden did if you haven't played in 16 months. So it was just, you know, your basic mid block that the U.S. was just able to tear apart. Lavelle found the space she needed to find. She scored the opening goal, et cetera, et cetera. Great. You can go through all the goals if you want to. There were a couple own goals in there as well. But I think the bigger talking point and the thing that people worried about was especially in that first half the u.s looked kind of shaky defensively they probably could have conceded headers had they been more accurate they did end up conceding one goal where after they were three nil up i'm interested in what your thoughts are on that and how much stock you put into it but there, there were two stories coming from sweden right it's what do the u.s do against that defensive structure which is not something that was going to be answered by this game and wasn't but the other thing Things like how are you going to deal with these two versus ones out wide, especially against Crystal Dunn? And I don't know if that was necessarily addressed. Like that mid block was weird and really uncompact, especially in the first half. And then suddenly the counter pressing got a lot better. And there was a period where US had no problem at all. And then to end the game, all of a sudden that the left side of the defense was open again and Dunn was exposed. And I thought New Zealand had some decent mechanisms. Like, they earned my respect in this game because, yeah, I mean, they got smashed. But I, I thought they gave trouble for the U.S. defensively, and they, they created a decent amount of chances. And their progression down the right was clean. They seemed like they had a clear strategy to play out there. 
and then play lofted balls into runners coming on the blind side into the box. And I think it worked decently for them, you know, given the context. So that I think was a concern that hasn't been necessarily answered for people. Okay. Yeah. The U S is great offensively and stuff, but as you come up against teams that maybe decide to be braver and look to attack on the flanks, how do you cover for it? Don't know if this game answered it. I want to know what your take is on that grant. Yeah. So I agree. This was a, it was a pretty shaky defensive performance, especially for a team of New Zealand. I think, you know, the U S has always kind of had all of this depth in the forward line as center back in midfield, but they lack depth or they don't call up natural positioned wingbacks. And I mean, you look at Crystal Dunn, who, for club plays an attacking role or a midfield role. Uh, Kelly O'Hara definitely has been a step off since the 2019 World Cup, and I think that she was still one of the the weaker players in that setup. And then today you have Sana in there, who's naturally a center back, spends most of her time playing as a center back or a six, and for some reason she plays right back for the women's national team. So overall, I think you're right about the Crystal Dunn um, covering thing. I'm much more confident in her 1v1 defending than I am on the right side. I think, you know, you slide Mewis into that um, or you give Haran more defensive responsibility in a game where you think that you're going to get a lot more pressure and you can try and deal with that over there. Also, again, I'll keep saying it. Lynn Williams would very much do a lot of defensive work down that wing, but I don't think she's made either 18. But for me, the biggest worry was Dahl Kemper did not play well today. I don't remember the last time I've seen her have a game like this. And then the space vacated behind her by Sonnet, where the goal eventually came from with that cross, um, that, looked, that looked rough. Um, and I don't know how much that improves with Kelly O'Hara in there. A lot of people have been talking about potentially rolling out against Australia with Becky Sauerbrunn and Tierna Davidson. That is potential. I think you don't really want to take the shot at Dahl Kemper's confidence like that, but maybe you need to. Another option is you throw in Casey Short at right back, who is more of an aerial presence. She's very experienced out there. But that right side of defense with Dahl Kemper, Sonnet slash O'Hara is is the weak point in this team right now. Yeah, so I was going to ask you because I saw people like saying this exact line, like we conversation about Dalkin, but I was going to ask you, do we need to? Because she ended up, like she was the reason for that conceded goal, right? So like a horrible clearance, she slips and falls, and like they're usually able to set up for, I don't know if it was an easy finish, it was kind of like a weird volley, but like they had plenty of time to hit it and it was a good location, blah, blah, blah. I almost feel like that's not the reason you talk, right? Like it was a horrendous mistake, but like, I'm not saying it should happen, but that stuff happens, right? It feels like the bigger issues, like the, you know, the more positional stuff, right? The stuff that is is not going to happen once in a blue moon, like what we saw there. And you, you were kind of mentioning the whole like covering spaces, not knowing if it'll get better with O'Hara coming back. So I guess you mostly covered it, but yeah, just do you, can I slide in one go more ahead. thing real quick? Yeah, go ahead. Go and ahead. as for that kind of thing where you're talking about the first few minutes, then the, the counter press getting better, and then the last few minutes, I think this team wanted to come out and they knew they were superior. 
and wanted to put up a ton of goals. So at the beginning, they went full throttle. They settled into their game after they got a few goals. Then at the end, you get the substitutes and it kind of maybe unsettles that a little. It's still worrying, but I think that you're going to see more defensive solidity, the back line more in order when, you know, you face a team with the threat of Sam Kerr rather than um, this New Zealand team. So you, so you, do you think Doc Kemper's like this big problem then? And- no. No, I think okay, so- I think she hasn't been great in this tournament, but I mean, who has been? Becky Sauerbrunn hasn't been good, but we've seen them all put in insane performances. They're professionals. They've been doing this at the highest level for a long time. Dahl Kemper plays for City. Becky's played all over the place, and she's the captain of the national team. I think that you're not going to have a major drop-off with Tierna Davidson sliding in. I think Tierna Davidson and Dahl Kemper are the future center-back pairing. For this back line, they're both good with the ball at their feet, usually can play long balls, all this stuff. No matter which center backs start, I think I have faith in them. But, I mean, you need to get that out of your system before the knockout rounds. Yeah, so the reason I ask all this is because I was talking about how people who are mentioning, like, do we need to talk about her? I I feel like she's under the most pressure now after that mistake. The fact that Sauerbrunn didn't play this game obviously means she's not going to be targeted for this one. And if, for example, Sam Kerr like peels off the back of her and scores a header, like the conversation is going to get quite heated about her. And I don't think the individual defending has been particularly good. It was quite poor versus Sweden. There were issues like covering blindside runs and stuff. And I think you could point all of that out. And I'm not necessarily saying we can't have a conversation about Dahl Camper, but as it is with me, me at least generally, when we talk about defending and we talk about allowing progressions and then stuff comes into the box, I think it, it needs to be a holistic conversation. And maybe there's a problem with like structure here with the U.S., a problem with like overloads down the flank. And I think all that needs to be considered together. And anytime you just kind of single in on one center back, when it, to me it's clear that there have been other problems in, in games, you're kind of missing the forest for the trees here. And maybe there needs to be a large conversation. Now, again, like you were kind of saying, you gave the reasons for why Maybe the U.S. just wasn't that solid versus New Zealand. And I don't think you're wrong. Like, the real test is Australia in terms of, did the U.S. learn the lessons from the Sweden game? And clearly, they have to come out and be a defensive unit because they, they know they can't just casually rely on their firepower to, to take them to the win like they did versus New Zealand, where, okay, New Zealand looked good offensively. They created chances. They scored. But, I mean, the U.S. still blew them away, right? Like, they didn't really need to care about defense to win versus Australia. They're going to have to when Sam Kerr could have scored four goals versus Sweden and ended up scoring two. Right. So that will be the one where I think we can watch that and then have all the conversations we want to have. But at the moment for me, if we want to have a big one, it, it has to start with structure first, because that's the thing that impacts defense the most. And then, yeah, we could talk about individual errors and stuff. But if you're putting players in bad positions, they're making mistakes. That doesn't necessarily avoid them because the greatest defenders pull their teams out of the fire, but you're liable to have runs like this, right? People have bad runs of form and you protect that using structure and you kind of smooth out the variance by not letting you get into that position in the first place, right? Not having constant two versus one down the right, the left-hand side versus done. So that's kind of where my head is at with the U.S. and versus Australia. I think we really need that's that's what we need to look at. And if that's not solved there, it really needs to become a talking point. But 
we'll, we'll see. We'll see. And uh, as Grant kind of mentioned, everyone freaks out about the United States anytime. Any, like, it's not like I've been oblivious to the conversation about the U.S. before, but now really keying into it, man. I don't know the last national team that just got everyone, whether you support them or you don't support them, like people have strong emotions about this side. And uh, yeah, I think Dahl Kemper's under immense pressure going to the game versus Australia. Probably doesn't help her, but that's, I mean, if you want to play for the United States, you got to respond to that and rise up. So we'll see how it is. Grant, any final thoughts on this game? Any of the stuff we saw before we sign off? Well, our life is going to be made difficult on the next match day because all of the groups have simultaneous kickoffs. So Group G kicks off all at the same time. So Sweden and the U.S. will be kicking off at the same time. Then um, all of the matches, I think I think our Group G kicks off at like 7, I want to say. So we have the latest kickoff, but um, we might have to do some recording of games and rewatching. Recording, rewatching, side by side. I mean, we'll, we'll see what our energy levels are like. It might not be as in-depth tactically as we've gone before, but we'll, we'll see what we can do. But that is when we will aim to return. You know, sometime uh, either the night or the day after seeking to record to wrap up the group stage coverage on the Olympics. And knowing that Sweden has gone through, we will continue to follow them. And the U.S. is also likely to go through. And obviously, we'll follow them and, and see... How things go and hopefully get a u.s sweden matchup because yeah, and, i'm desperate to see what that looks like and maybe we could do a little preview of what these matchups are going to look like because we'll have a good idea since uh group g plays last we'll we'll know who everyone's playing and we could talk about that and how those sure grant match up. let's let's do more work we don't have, we don't have enough work why don't we do previews for every single game? well no no i'm not just i'm just saying <laughs> we can just talk about it a little bit all right i know i'm not, I, I'm I not know. talking in-depth research here i'm just saying watch the game figure it out yeah yeah we'll see we'll see what we can do and then little update in terms of that awards podcast and special guests we'll have on looking to plan to record that august 3rd it seems that everyone has said yes we can do that that is what you guys look forward to in terms of like pure real madrid femino content coming back to you so we also kind of explained what the rest of our aims were in, in terms of like preseason coverage in the first podcast. I don't need to repeat it here, but I just wanted to highlight that that season award podcast is, is basically locked down now at this point and quite excited for it. And I think all of you are going to love it. Grant, thank you so much again for going through all of this. We're quite exhausted at this point. We'll see how we are on Tuesday with the chaos that that will be. But I guess this is just the life of covering football all year round without any break. And uh, as always, couldn't do it without you and wouldn't do it without anyone else. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And all Madrid. All Madrid. <laughs>